Welcome to this podcast from the Royal College of Anaesthetists. I'm Dr Deirdre Conway, Consultant Anaesthetist at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh and St John's Hospital. I'm the wellbeing lead for our department and faculty member on the College's Anaesthetist as Educators introduction course. Today I'm joined by Dr Nancy Redfern and Dr Owen Doerr. Welcome Nancy and Owen. Can you introduce yourselves? Nancy, let's start with you. Yes, so I'm Nancy Redfern and as I say, I'm, uh, as you've just said, I'm your partner in crime at the um, Anaesthetists Educators course um, and I'm a consultant in Newcastle and I've had a long-term interest in, in trainee and, and actually all about well-being. Um, I do a little bit of work about fatigue and have uh, run a mentor development course um, and over the years, you know, as college tutor and then specialty dean director, tried to set things up so that as many as possible of us achieve our full potential. Hi, I'm Owen. I'm a anaesthetic registrar working in Thames Valley. I've got an interest in wellbeing and education, and I recently did a podcast series with my colleague Duncan called Nodpot. And so this is a fantastic combination of everything I'm interested in. However, I've got more of a trainee experience, so I think I, that's the main thing I'm bringing as opposed to uh, lots of your guys inside the knowledge. Welcome, Nancy and Owen. So today we're going to be discussing how we create an environment for learning within our workplace. And I'd like to start maybe from the point of uh, one of the stated course objectives of the Nisitists as educators. One of those says to appreciate the importance of a positive, safe learning environment. I might want to think about what we actually mean by that, but I'd like to start by exploring how each one of us has got where we got to be where we are. Nancy, can I start with you? What's your training experience been like? Yeah, so I actually started my training in, in Leith, um, so sort of near where, where you work, uh, to be honest, now well-appointed flats. Um, and one of the things that was really excellent there was that uh, there was just me and, and the consultant, um, and he knew everything and I knew nothing, but it, that didn't really matter. It was about how do I help you learn as much as possible and enjoy working here. Um, and then I moved on, I worked in Glasgow, um, and again, the working atmosphere and the idea that you learnt and you learnt well in an environment that was fun was absolutely embedded in the whole way people worked. I do just wonder whether a little bit of that was because anaesthesia at that time was slightly less popular and because we knew we needed lots of us because there was so much work to do, that keeping the trainees, keeping the trainees happy, keeping a, a, a productive and positive working environment actually was was pretty central to keeping a staff. Um, that I think has, has kind of it certainly rubbed off on me. I then went to Manchester, where the doctor-patient relationship, uh, the doctor-patient numbers rather in um, Scotland, there were more doctors per patient, and in Manchester, you know, if you'd seen something, you had to go and do it, and it was very, very much more stretched. And I felt really privileged to have had such a good training in, in Scotland. Um, and so I just went and did loads of stuff there. So that by the time I ended up um, 
I, I think my husband's middle name must have been Ulysses because we kept moving. He's nothing to do with medicine. Uh, so by the time I ended up in, in Newcastle, I had worked in 25 different hospitals and I had a whole gamut of ways that you might do something, um, which seemed a bit of a contrast, particularly sort of Edinburgh and Glasgow. They didn't move around very much. Um, and Newcastle was... Um, not a place that people came to and went from it's a hundred miles to the next big training place perhaps so the, there were things that were done this way or that and I think for me the privilege of having moved around a lot meant that I had a variety of potential ways of seeing things and doing things so that's my experience. Thank you. Owen, how's your training experience? I think I've had quite a meandering training path, really. I was a, uh, well, I had to extend my foundation training years and didn't get to do any of the specialties I wanted to. I was in uh, a lot of community-based placements because I had a knee injury. So I then went into paediatrics and I was in resus watching uh, at a, um, a peri-arrest and I saw the anaesthetist come down and I thought, that is the job that I want to do. So I switched on to anaesthetics and I've been in, now I'm on my third training deanery, which I'm not sure if that sends a red flag to people in the college. But uh, I think quite similar to you now, to be able to see three different areas um, and deaneries and how they've done it, which I think has been uh, pretty strong. But there has been uh, where I think we've um, a slight difference is there's less of that personalised um, training that's then been given. And you're looking more at... Um, systems based for both applications which can sometimes seem a bit anonymous and also when you're going around and rotating every year fairly similar as well however that being said I've loved my sex training I think like we still get that kind of master and apprentice model done really well and I think there's a reason that we are very popular at the moment is because we do aim to look after our trainees. I'm not saying everything is not perfect and there's definitely some things to improve and hopefully we will touch upon some of those areas, but I've really, really enjoyed it so far and as it, as it is always continuing at the moment. How about yourself? How did you start off? It's interesting. I was expecting to find some really stark differences asking both of you, you know, how was it for you, Nancy? Um, how was it for you, Owen? And thinking that I'd be somewhere in the middle. But actually, my experience was largely the same. I trained in three different areas within Scotland. And in each one of those places, didn't move around an awful lot within the region. So got the benefit of longer training placements. And again, just being a little bit, being known, being part of a family, for want of a better term, like an anaesthetic family. And that afforded the ability to do things a bit more independently with more indirect supervision because the people that were supervising you knew, knew you. You were yeah. there for a year. You were there for 18 months. I'd be interested, Nancy, when's the first time that you did a list by yourself as an anaesthetist? Um, a list? Probably at about... Not really by myself. I was left by the consultants at about nine or ten months. Um, and then in Glasgow, I probably didn't do that many, so it was completely in Manchester. But the first time I anaesthetised somebody with nobody else in, in the building... Uh, it was on emergencies, uh, and that was after about three months. 
and that was because the registrar covered three different hospitals um, and if we didn't get something going then the patient was going to have to wait a long time and so there was a sort of bit of a conversation about well what's going to go wrong and what you're going to do about it and on we go then. Oh and how about yourself? I, apart from C-Pod, probably going to say CT2, although I'm very welcome for my college tutor from my first year to uh, email me in. But that was also because when I was getting on to the point of where they might be doing a, and considering solo lists, COVID happened. And I think that has had quite a large impact, as a lot of trainers and trainees will know. So the, the one that comes... Directly to my mind is after I've done my IAOC, I did an elective caesarean section list where the main thing I can remember is what music I put on for the, for the entire thing. You might argue that that's part of creating a nice, positive and safe environment for your patient. Mm. But um, I would say my first, solo, my first solo case was in emergency theatres, and I think that's a common theme with all of us. My first solo list was also as a CT2, and it was in a big teaching hospital and reflecting back on that now where I am as a consultant I work one of the hospitals I work in is a big teaching hospital the other one's also a teaching hospital I feel obliged to say um but um it's interesting to look back and think about again almost the independence that I was given as a CT2 and that would have been about 10 years ago and I wonder if things have moved on mm. a bit since then when we think about to go back to that positive, safe learning environment, there's actually a lot in there. Um, what do we think, what do we mean when we talk about a positive learning environment? The working relationship between the two people, you know, one of whom is, is described as the learner and the other, the other of whom, you know, as a consultant, if I don't think I'm also learning, I think then we're not getting there. Um, and I think it's that kind of what can I learn from you? What do you what what is the environment I'm trying to create for that person? Um, the the CT one or CT two who's trying to gain that independence? You know, do I stand back? How much do I, and that uh, trying to create the environment where you've got the that person's confidence that you are going to try and give them the right, the, a good experience versus all that other hidden curriculum about getting the lists done, everybody looking towards the surgeon and anaesthetist and realising they can only collect their children um, from nursery on time if we get the thing done and yet not letting that be at the front of what's going on but that that actually has to be part of what we're learning. So... That means that there are two things going on. There's a sort of working relationship and and there's also the what elements are you trying to learn and the thing that people describe as the hidden curriculum, which is about you're not just learning to give an anaesthetic, you're learning to um, run a team of people and achieve a joint outcome, which is known as the theatre list. I do remember the first time that I didn't have a consultant in the room and I was paranoid of doing anything. I felt like I was like a million miles away, but actually she, the person was just in the, like watching very closely through the door. Um, and I think that that point really did increase my confidence though, because I was oh, I can do this. 
Positive's one thing, you can almost take them out, can't you? Um, there's a really interesting paper that's been um, a piece of work that's been done by colleagues in Australia looking at that relationship between the supervisor and the trainee. And they talk about that almost attention in the relationship because as the trainee, you're coming in looking for an opportunity to maximise your learning for that day. As a trainer, um, you are looking to get through the list and also there's a, a what's known as a sizing up process between trainer and trainee with regards, can this person do this safely? Um, can we progress through the list and how we get through that sizing up? So we're looking, there is maybe a bit of tension between the safety there. How do we provide safe care for our patients while maximising the learning outcomes? Um, positive. Positive is a slightly different thing, isn't it? Um, who, who do we mean positive for? All of us within the team? What about the patient? How does the patient enter that relationship? And something that strikes me as we're all talking across these things, it's all about communication and being open and explicit. Mm -hmm. Oh, and you'd mentioned something about um, doing a list indirectly supervised but it sounds like it wasn't explicitly stated to you that it was going to be a list that you're doing by yourself mm. so there's something isn't there about what are we stating at the start of the day but if I've never met you before how do we have that conversation it said who are you what can you do what do you want to get out of today we have five six seven eight patients on the list and actually we're under a lot of pressure time wise mm. what language do we use maybe that's mm. something we could take mm. a bit of time and think about mm. Nancy, what are your thoughts on the language and those conversations that you have at the start of the day? There's a balance, isn't there, between trying to make sure that people realise that you've come and you're going to enjoy things, that there's a, a kind of collaborative inquiry about which bits does the trainee want to do or do differently. Um, and then there's the creating the whole environment within the ODP or anaesthetic nurse and working as a team to make the patient feel as comfortable and, and positive as possible. Um, so, again, I think, for me, I think sometimes a sort of more tentative language is, is my natural style. But I do also see people who are appreciated, who are saying, right, well, it's me today and we're going to do A and B and, 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 and C, and they're very clear and 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 um, and respectful but make clear what what their position is i think what you were saying there in terms of the language is very difficult for large centers mm -hmm. and i think that is somewhere that um i've found uh, difficult sometimes in that mm -hmm. negotiation between what am i getting out of this day and look at the clinical priorities that are on where you have maybe 150, 180 different anaesthetic consultants and maybe 50 to 100 trainees. Now, if you're meeting a consultant for the first time in a tertiary centre, how, how do you get that level of um, respect or autonomy across for you to grow? And I think one of the problems that you might have is when you switch that dyad quite quickly between 150 you're never going to get a consistent growth pattern where someone has seen you or maybe, maybe they've watched us talk about central lines. They, they're happy, they, they want to do a central line in a particular way. You, they, you want them to um, watch you do it carefully, then do it without them saying anything. 
and then do it with them without the room. But if you're trying to do that with 150 people, that's 450 opportunities or 450 training sessions that you need. And that doesn't really equate to training. And then the other thing I think that we've got to throw into this is, um, am I expecting a trainee? What rotor changes have there been? You know, oh, a trainee, sort of kind of get the red carpet out. This is marvellous. Because so often now, I think, um, you know, people are very stretched. And, you know, somebody has turned up just to make absolutely sure that they get the best experience possible. For you, Deirdre? So I think there are a lot of conflicting things in there when you think about how to run that list and run that day. I take your point about the um, oh, and about the tertiary centre um, and working in a large department and you might not have that many encounters with one particular trainee. I think in an ideal world for me, I would like to be consistently working with, well, consistent lists would be one thing, but consistently week after week having the opportunity to have perhaps a smaller group of trainees at a particular stage. So you get to know me, you get to know the list, and you get to progress. Yeah. And that is that is um, what I think good looks like. Unfortunately, because of the staffing pressures that you have alluded to, Nancy, we might not often work with trainees, so that's just not an option at all. Interesting, there's a really nice, a, a lovely quote that came out of that paper that I was talking about where... Yes, working in a, a big tertiary centre, I think particularly very early in your training, it's very difficult to get a consistent approach and a standardised thing. But perhaps as you move on a little bit, that exposure to lots of different people, lots of different techniques can actually be beneficial. And somebody used the phrase, because we have to teach or we have to learn how to pull a rabbit out of a hat. So it's putting maybe a little bit more of a positive spin on, it can be challenging working with 90, 100, 150 people that you might never actually encounter within three months or six months. But there is something to seeing a variety of different things. So where do we, how do we get that middle ground? There's something else as well, which I think is that the, as consultants, we perhaps forget a little bit that the trainees, of course, will talk about us um, so that we can try and work out if anybody is missing out on some bits of training or life's just thrown a few too many curveballs and things so that we can try and get the best environment. But it must be a little bit soul-destroying and absolutely different from my own experience of starting off where I was working with the same small group of people because it's a lot of smaller hospitals. Uh, when you have to have this sort of you know, rigmarole of saying, I'm so-and-so, I've done this amount, um, as you're sort of starting for 10 at the beginning of the day. What we're talking about here is like how to create an environment where you are getting people closer towards that relationship where they can negotiate. Uh, I think there's a few structural... So there's both things that you can do as an individual and there's things that you can do as a structure. As a anaesthetics department, uh, three or four of the places I've been to has every trainer and every trainee's photo on the wall. So you join the department and you are... Owen ST4 up on the wall and you're like ah I'm in here I'm part of the department versus somewhere where you're almost having to apologize for where you are and it feels that you then take two or three weeks to mold in I I think my department I'm in at the moment does well being really well and it's one of the places where 
the GMC survey, the reports for anaesthetics are up here in comparison to other departments. And that they do those photos on the wall. They do the um, college tutor sends you an email with your um, schedule and your rotor, but you get to have a bit of autonomy in how you pick it. You have an induction where you meet everyone, so you already meet all the trainees, so you feel that you have that peer connection group. So part of part of creating a good learning environment is the individual on the day asking, firstly, how are you and what do you want out of today, and then that sets you up. But the other part is creating the systems so that people can thrive in it, and how you can, or how um, we can maybe take some learnings from other sectors. We do a lot in the airline industry where we take what they do and like the QR uh, Career Reference Handbook. I know that some high performance teams, even lead performance teams, have stopped having so many structured meetings and have created areas where they have casual collisions that then allows them to increase the frequency of the people that they need to catch, like their educational supervisor, their clinical supervisor, their peer that's doing a similar case, and then either share their learning or be able to bring up things in an informal way that then allow them to both feel supported but also more seen. I know that that can create a better culture and maybe um, one of the ways that that's happened where we are is that we managed to get a coffee machine donated and one of the consultants who's very interested in well-being has set up a cafe almost style area around the coffee machine but the college shooter sits there from 7.15 to 7.45 to allow trainees to come and the conversations that we have about non-work and work are just fantastic so if anyone's looking to uh, steal not the coffee machine but the, the idea uh, have a go because I think it just creates a really natural environment for people to come and share their feelings of either worry or uh, personal things that they need to do in that in that appropriate environment. So you have a safe space? But isn't that the whole point of the coffee room? The sort of creating that just casual atmosphere means that people can and and, and you know the thought that the sort of coffee room it, it, it's actually a very strategic place because you go and sit next to so and so or have a quick chat with somebody else. Um, and work out that because the the other thing that goes on in the coffee room is a bit of chit chat about what sort of patients and what challenges you've got. So as a a group of consultants, you know what's on your list that day. Oh, I've got a trainer who hasn't done that block. Well, um, how would it be if? Um, and so lots and lots of opportunity that that informal conversation creates much more quickly and efficiently than do all the sort of formal meetings. Do you think the one of the changes in training that has occurred is now due to the pressure that is on lists and surgeons and consultant anaesthetists and um, specialist associate anaesthetists has meant that that time where they were able to connect and sort of, and think about the trainees that they had with them has sort of been lost because the, they have to relieve one another for breaks and then they go and eat a sandwich by themselves? Or... And, and in some way, if you've got somebody who's relieving you for breaks, I can remember during COVID, one of the marvellous things was we had a, a consultant who went in and out of, of the different lists 
uh, strategic and intelligent conversation about getting the best out of some quite complicated situations. And that those um, places, those theatre, um, with a big set of theatres who have a, a kind of, you know, an on-call consultant who's, whose job it is to do that, or a senior trainee, um, that that's, if you do that well, that can be a really valuable educational role of making sure that the most people get the most of things. And the other thing I think that is really important in that is we don't all come to work every day feeling at our best. And if somebody, you know, what you were saying before about the car parking and, and you know, you've, you've, you've taken half an hour to get yourself into work um, because of something, something to do with the way that the organisation doesn't value as a, you as a person and seems not to have served you up the uh, car park space next to the chief executive. Um, and that if you come to work in a frazzle, then of course it's not going to go so well. And then the, many, many of our uh, trainees and consultants have young families. And one of the things that I notice now that I think my own generation, I'm a sort of baby boomer, have always been very weak on is that business that um, you know generation Y definitely want a good working environment with a sensible work-life balance and to be respected and valued and you look at people striking and part of it is because the behaviour they're meeting from the NHS is not what they uh, require and what isn't in their core values whereas when I started um, you know, well, when I went to medical school, I, there was a quota for women, it was 20%. Um, and you just couldn't say anything in that environment about the fact, you know, whether you were pregnant or had children or something like that. Um, but yet, one of the most stressful things in life in the world is being in a theatre with a patient that you can't see getting off the table and your child at a nursery that is going to shut in 20 minutes. There's a lot in there, but one of the things, one of the, the major things that strikes me about all of that comes back to being open. Um, there's a lot of expectation that we have. Each of us will bring our own individual expectation into the workplace. Some of that is generational expectation, and you've touched on that, Nancy. You'll have different expectations as a boomer, a boomer, a baby boomer, um, <laughs> compared to myself. And compared to you and I suspect your expectations of the workplace would be slightly different to mine but it's all implicit and we don't necessarily communicate that out loud and perhaps what good would look like and in an ideal world we would be able to have that open com you know conversation so yes there's a learning there's a space for a learning conversation but there's also a space for just you as a person what do you want to get out of today might honestly be I need to be out of here by X time because I need to pick my kids up from school. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something in that about role model, that I think if I say, well, I'm a bit frazzled because of X, Y and Z, and I've got to, you know, if I, if I share with them, well, I'm, I'm doing this podcast in the afternoon, so I kind of feel that I better get out in, in a reasonable time frame, and I own that... I, I hope I'm not saying it's all dumped on you. I hope I'm saying, and for you, 
where are you with all that? Well, I'd be interested in what your take would be on, for us as trainers or as consultants, um, how do you think as a trainee or how do you feel as a trainee if we do let you in a little peek behind the curtain and being a little bit more vulnerable with actually I'm quite stressed about this or I am worried about this. What are your thoughts on that? I What you were talking about with explicit and implicit, so you're saying you approach it and say it. If you don't approach it and say it, it's going to be picked up anyway. So um, despite what you think, there'll be certain body language or a certain tone or the way that you talk, even if it's not to the trainee, it's onto the ODP or even with the patient and that will be picked up and shared by members of the team. We know the civility saves lives part. The interesting thing, we had a conversation with a pilot um, as part of maternity simulation training and they were saying that in long haul flights, if they're tired and they've got no sleep, well, if they're not no sleep, but if they're tired and they feel they're still safe to fly the plane, but they're tired, they announce it. And so I've, I've in a in a way, I've started doing that when I'm 4am and we're about to do an RSR, tell it to my ODP so that they then feel able to um, pick things out. And it's similar coming back. It's, oh, actually, this person is human. And whilst it is the master and apprentice role, okay, so um, they're, they're accepting that, they're feeling tired and they're having a bad day. Actually, I'm I'm having a bad day too. That is um, not not that it's okay to not be okay because I know a lot of people say that, but um, it's sort of role modelling, as you've mentioned earlier, Nancy. For when I'll become a consultant, maybe this is how I can interact with my trainees, and it might allow them to come forward more with. You know what, I do need to leave by five because my child's nursery is shut. Or, you know what, my mum and dad are pretty sick at the moment and all I want to do is just have a nice day of anaesthetics. And people who have treated me as a person, as a human, have come with that approach. And I feel that I've been able to then be in a, as you've mentioned earlier, a psychological safe space because it's um, interesting. That means different things for different people as well. What's the psychological safe space for learning mean for you, Deirdre? To me, it means a place of openness between, and I guess, a coffee room can have psychological safety because you have, um, I guess it's a slightly more informal space. Um, You have an identity and a belonging in a space like a coffee room. Um, And I always think about that. And I think it's, there's something very safe about sharing a warm drink with someone. Now, psychological safety then takes into you ha- how do you actually create that space where you and I can have a conversation and you feel safe saying things out loud, like, I need to leave at a certain time. And a lot of it is to do with, I guess, your body, the language that you use, your body language, your tone, but also not just saying, it's not unidirectional and me saying, great job, but following it up and actually giving a little bit more to that, perhaps having a structure for your communication, whether that's the communication that you have within the various members of the team, um, but not just saying something and walking away. So there's something about availability. Nancy, what does psychological safety mean for you? Yes, I think you're right that a lot of it has to do with what is on my mind and am I in an environment where I can share this? And I think, you know, I've 
had the privilege of working alongside a number of people who've, who've been, you know, become ill during training. And it's one of those most challenging things in the world to work out that I'm actually too ill to be at work, and particularly if it's not a physical illness, if it's a psychological or stress-related illness. Um, and how and when you have that conversation where you're trying to support that person to explore it, but the top end of an anaesthetic room, of an anaesthetic um, where you're pretending the surgeon isn't listening isn't right. Um, you haven't got the space and time to do it in, in the anaesthetic room between patients. And shall we both um, walk to the department, which is 10 minutes away, feels a little bit over-pressurised. And, and, and in some way, I think, when we're creating that psychological safe space, we've got to do it in a, in a sort of light and positive way because that... You know, there's a small group who, who answer well, but there's an awful lot of us for whom, if we get a kind and positive environment, actually the whole thing goes better. The other bit I think about in this is creating a psychologically safe space for the surgeon. I could never be a surgeon. I look, they've got a knife, they're doing it in public. If you cut it, you know, it bleeds, you can't really, you know, if we can't intubate, we just retire gracefully and get the, get the glide scope out and, and ventilate and, and nobody really knows. Um, but it's not that for them. And if one of the ways I think we can create it is in the working relationship with the surgeon and how we respond to what I see as, you know, <laughs> horrendously stressful job yeah interesting you say that because firstly what surgery are you doing in public <laughs> and secondly <laughs> is your advocacy for anesthetics rooms uh primarily based on so that we can hide away from other people judging us the there's an interesting paper that came out i believe it was this year um, or maybe early last year about the anesthetic surgical dyad and the more people that work together the better the outcomes for and this was complex patients, right? So esophagectomy level. So we know that those positive relationships help. So then how do you break it down so that when you're working with someone for the first time, you are, uh, you are able to say to them, are you okay? I think quite a lot of that comes into our interaction with them. Sometimes they're having a much worse day than us. They've got a ward, they have A&E referrals, they have people complaining about their surgery, so they might be feeling guilty. And then they come to add on a CPOD list. And there's been a couple of times where we've had an interaction that I haven't felt has been particularly going well. And I've asked them to, um, just afterwards, are you doing all right? It seems like you're having a pretty tough day. And then coming from that compassion model, you then listen to their day and you're like, oh my gosh, that was way worse than mine. And I was complaining about only having two coffee breaks with my consultant. But now it seems like the fact that I don't have an A&E because sort of shouting at me. Now my day seems a bit better. And I guess that's when you're saying about creating a good training environment. It's not just our training, but speaking and looking with the trainees that we're coming up with is also important because, lo and behold, although we've changed deaneries three times between us, it, it, we've all changed it, so we've changed the reason nine times between us, actually, if, if my maths is correct. Probably more. Well, probably, actually, it's likely it is be anaesthetic consultants or SAS doctors with 
the trainee surgeons that we're, we're up with. So creating good relationships with them is very important. And there's something in education where they say learners learn all the time and teachers teach some of the time. And of course, as, as the trainee is observing the surgeon, you know, consultant, surgeon, consultant, anaesthetist uh, conversation, whether or not they have the vocabulary or whether we use the vocabulary, it, they are noticing what that working relationship is like and how the anaesthetist and surgeon are trying to work together to support each other to try and achieve what, what's on the list or to work out that actually this list and, and the number of hours we've got, this is not achievable, let's not stress ourselves too much, let's, let's be open and honest about that. Yeah, exactly. And actually, as you say, people, it's not just you needing to pick up your kids or something at 5.30 or promising to see your family. It's the whole team that you're interacting with. There's some stuff you were saying there, Nancy, with regards um, our working relationship with our surgeons and what might be noticed and observed by those we are training. And that might not just be the people in anaesthesia that we are training. It comes back to role modelling. How do you feel we as trainers can explicitly role model? And that's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because um, one of the things I think that's going on is that as you become an expert, they say that you kind of, you, you don't notice what you're doing. You get to this thing of called unconscious competence, where you're you're making decisions quickly, you're using a thing called recognition prime decision making and, and doing actions, and most of it is kind of intuitive. And therefore, um, there's this thing about what is tacit knowledge, and is tacit knowledge something that you don't express, or is it something for which you don't have a vocabulary to express? And, you know, people will notice, and they're working with Deirdre, and it's like this, and it's it's good fun because it's X and Y. And actually, it takes a lot of analytical thinking for us to work out, well, what is it I'm doing that is making it like this rather than like that? And I think it's something that we possibly don't discuss. I mean, I, you know, there are poor souls here doing an exam at the moment who may be asked what the partial pressure of, you know, halothane or sevoflurane is. And I kind of think, I wonder if we've slightly lost our way, really, because if we could have a little bit more discussion about how do you create the environment in which, as in the modern world, the trainee um, will have a phone and will be able to tell you the answers to a huge number of factual things straight away, and those facts become less important. It's your behaviour and, and the way you reflect and review and think about things. And different people come from different worlds when it comes to that. Some of our trainees, even now, uh, particularly those who come from different countries, uh, most of our training in the UK is, is very learner-centred and the, people have done problem-based learning and, and that sort of thing as undergraduates. 
there are still places in the world where the whole thing is what they call teacher-centred and it, that's a sage on the stage and you're meant to absorb knowledge and facts, but then your behaviours and attitudes seem to be less discussed, there is less vocabulary about that. It may be that there's less vocabulary in that language, but in that culture there is definitely that. Um, and one of the things I really struggle with is when people use what I think of as pejorative or judgmental language, um, that trainee lacks insight. Well, that's it's very, very rare that anybody lacks insight. What's really going on, possibly, is that they, they're behaving like that because of something. And what we need to do is try and explore and understand and to recognise that within that person, the, the answer as to what's happening is there, but we've got to create the environment where, where it becomes safe to, to explore that. So there's something in there about we have to notice as trainers that that is happening, but we also have to understand it and we might might not have the language. So when we talk about not having insight, as you say, it's not that someone lacks insight. They might, I don't mean lack the language to express that, but we lack the language and I mean the phrases that you use or that psychological safety for someone to actually be able to say that to you. Mm. I am behaving like this because a constant theme that is threaded through our discussion, a lot of relational stuff, a lot of team working, and those are attitudes, behaviours, mm -hmm. nothing. Yes, there's some knowledge in there, but a lot of the things, I think the challenges that we come up against and the positive things in our environment are attitudinal and behavioural and acknowledging that we're not just individuals within mm -hmm. a silo. And I think we... Another thing, you know, when it's particularly high stakes and you're nervous yourself about, you know, an airway or about getting a line in or about what's going to happen in theatre. And therefore, for some of us, because I'm nervous, I think I better do it myself. And for others of us, well, I think that trainee's really good at this. And actually, if I watch, I might get that level of just being a little bit aside and some more metacognition about what what to do but again you know you we're listening to Owen who's got a huge amount of experience in elite training and he might be better than me at watching so we should be having a conversation to say well you know the things I can see going wrong with this or this and that and for yourself and you might think of a load of different things and that it's the combination and that that is the creation of that safety that is safer for the patient and safer for us and that I think brings me to another thing which is that you're really only as good as your next anaesthetic and so you know looking and thinking how do I fail gracefully? And yeah. I think as doctors, we're not trained to fail. And fail might not even be the, might even be considered pejorative as a, a word to use. Have you ever, Owen, given a consultant feedback at the end of the day or feedback on their performance at any stage? I, um, so it, it depends. I think we're very good at giving good feedback, right? And that's, um, and saying there's a consultant who, um, had um, I've, I've watched how he teaches and 
he uses a lot of positive reinforcement, saying, "Oh, you're doing great. That's well done. Beautiful." When you do, when we're doing a uh, regional block, and it gave me the confidence to do a rectus spiny blocks, and I did one of the patient by himself. I texted him to say, um, "Thank you for doing that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have felt confident doing the block." There, in terms of bad feedback, I find that that's or um, things to improve. I find that sometimes difficult to then get that conversation on in terms of I would have preferred to have been trained in a different way. And I think as trainers, we need to ask that. Is there anything else you would have wanted done today or uh, given people the space to say that? One of the hospitals I was at actually does a MSF for the consultants which isn't what we we much prefer to personalise thing, but then that also provides direct feedback about their training. So it allows people to then receive it and improve as they go. Yeah, we get that. We get uh, feedback every six months from the trainees. One of the challenges with that, though, is that actually people find it really difficult to give negative feedback. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, quite a lot of trainees, I think, will say things quietly to themselves, but actually the business of getting it written down. And then sometimes those who write it down, it's that business that you, you know, ask you to fold your arms and you can do it naturally, fold them the other way and it comes out as a rather unskilled and quite performative thing. And that actually the negative feedback can sometimes... It, it it can be not well, not well phrased and quite challenging for the poor soul to receive. I think that's what's very important about um, psychological safety is that um, it's being feeling that you're valued and feeling that you add value, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you are receiving positive feedback. Um, or and I remember I was at the OAA conference where. A Gaelic professional footballer who's also an anaesthetist was um, putting on a Thrive to Survive type um, piece where she was being shouted at by her coach and she says, oh actually I found this a positive experience. Everyone's looking at it and saying, how could you cope in that environment? And she was saying, because I know that I'm valued and I'm adding value, I'm taking that the points that they're saying and putting them into practice. And then anaesthetics, I think working out how we create that environment where people learn how to receive feedback as well and maybe not think of themselves as doctors but as learners, it then sets them up for a growth mindset and makes them more comfortable. I know we talked about the way of failing, but I took, um, and I think my people who are with me in my CT3 will attest this, I took like 10 goes to get an epidural in first time and it took me um, the first few goes, I was really upset by it, and someone took me to the side and said, look, this is, if you don't think we've all done this, you're dead wrong, we've all failed. It is just about getting up on that learning curve and pushing yourself up, and it helped me change my mindset into actually, they're not criticising me when they're telling me how to change my epidural technique, they are just saying I, how I grow and how I get better. I think that can sometimes be um, difficult as well for trainers. And I know that some trainers I've spoken to said, I don't give difficult feedback anymore because I've had complaints or I've had 
stuff come back at me and I think, well, it's not worth it anymore. And have you both, have you experienced that where you have tried to give someone feedback that you've intended to improve them? I think one of the things with that is about, um, you've got to be in a, you've got to have a certain amount of confidence to receive feedback and particularly negative feedback. Yes. Yeah. And therefore that question of, should we do a bit of discussion at the end of the day or at some point about how it's gone um, and how because you know there are there are two bits of feedback there's the bit about your psychomotor skills where you know the consequences of not being able to do an epidural and and you're somewhere either in uh, no pain relief or dural puncture sort of thing so that's something for which both the trainer and the trainee think are, are legitimate things but the feedback about your demeanour when you are going in there to have a go and you're looking at the, um, at the lawyer husband and thinking, I, you know, this isn't helping me to do a, a procedure that is, is quite complicated. And I'm looking and thinking, oh, you know, if your demeanour was a little different, maybe the tension in the room would be, would be different. And at what point are you in a position to be able to notice that and receive it? And again, I think there are differences. You know, I've talked, to, I've talked about cultural differences. Another group of people for whom I think this is a kind of... I haven't got my head quite around the challenge. We have a number of people who are really respected colleagues who are on the autistic spectrum. And... For them, I think a bit more certainty and some of this complexity they get very well. But, you know, am I pitching this right? When am I doing it? How am I doing it? One of the challenges for us with the feedback that we get, we get it every six months. And one of the things they say about feedback is do it as soon as possible afterwards yeah. and in a private place. Well, five and a half months later, you parked in my car parking space says more about you than me. To go back to your point about feedback, Owen, and experiences where we might have had as trainers having feedback that wasn't well received, I've certainly had a learning conversation that wasn't well received. There was perhaps an element of defensiveness mm -hmm. that was observed. I have felt defensiveness on the receiving end of what would be called feedback in all stages, both professionally and otherwise. And I wonder about that, if feedback and those conversations are things that only happen, as you say, Nancy, every six months, whereas for those in training, it's part of the prescribed training curriculum. You must have regular feedback. We don't get that. What, what about if it was every day, if it was normal, if it just I'm expecting that you're going to say something because everything we've been talking about with this for want of a better phrase, master-apprentice relationship, it feels very unidirectional. Mm -hmm. Me to you, trainer to trainee. Well, actually, I'm a learner too. I don't mm -hmm. stop learning. I've been a consultant for five years, but every day I'm learning from something. And if we're a little bit more open, that we are still learners, we're adult learners, um, and how do we set that? And there's something about normalising it. And then that brings us back to role modelling. So if I accept and quite open about the fact that I'm still learning. I'm a consultant, but I'm still learning every day. And I would expect you to be able to reflect some things back to me. 
a couple of things from that. Firstly, feedback every day. I, I once had a lecture from uh, the person who ran the Sim Suite St. George's, and they put up Roger Federer and said, why do you think he's a champion? And lots of people go round, 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 and then no one answers correctly. And he said, it's because he receives feedback every stroke, every day. And if you want to improve in medicine, that's what you should be aiming for. And it really changed how I approached the day. And I don't think we do do that enough where you, as you say, you start the conversation in the morning and say, this is what I'm looking for feedback on, and then come back at the uh, end of the day. Because if you ask for generic feedback, you will get a generic answer. If I ask you, how, how do I do on this podcast, for example, you'll just say, oh, good, thanks, that's grand. Whereas if I say, did I spell and miss out my grammar before, you'll say, yeah, actually, you, you skip over quite a few words. But the um, important bit for it is maybe we should be looking as part of training, making sure people have, we're not just providing opportunities where people go to somewhere, we look at what is going to change their behaviour, because that is what the important part of training is. It's not just putting people in a theatre environment, it's how will they take this experience and apply it to the next. And if we're not expecting everyone who's on the list to say, too good, too bad, to take much of the days way they do it, or just say, what should I be doing differently? You, you've just said that you're going to have a different insight to your trainees. So if you're not sharing that, how the experience is for both of you, every day, you won't get in the most out day, you won't change your behaviour the most. And I think there's a difference between, because uh, I think feedback has to be specific and what you noticed and a description of behaviour, and yet your thing of too good, too bad, that's a judgment. Mm. And that, yes, you should provide the evidence. And, and if you want to offer the judgment at the end, so for me that was you know, too good, too bad. But actually what you want to know is, what, what it, you, we both know what the impact is. You know, the patient's either better or not. But let's look at what the process is. And, and you know, the Roger Federer stuff is, is feedback about the process because they can both see the outcome, he won or he lost. So, again, I think, is the curriculum, is the way we're doing things not quite covering as much of what we need to as, as perhaps we should? Nancy, you mentioned the hidden curriculum. So we obviously have a set curriculum um, that we are all working through. We're in a... Um, We've come through a competency-based training programme and there are stage one, stage two, stage three of training. Things have changed a little bit in that regard over the last couple of years, but there's still a very definite structure. Into that has come generic professional capabilities. I want to explore a little bit the hidden curriculum. What do you mean by hidden curriculum? Well, let me start somewhere slightly different. That There's the curriculum on paper. There's the curriculum as delivered or experienced by the person who's who's there as the, as the teacher and there's what the learner takes away and all of those are different and then and as well as that there's what they described as the hidden curriculum um, which isn't explicit in, in any of those but which perhaps does have quite an influence on the environment and, and the safety and the way thing, things are. Um, and I think 
for me, one of the things I think that could be explored more is what the difference between what the teacher um, thought they were teaching and what the learner took away. And one of the places, as you were talking, I was thinking, boy, we could do this the other way around, is I, I can't say I'm the mo most robust with the, um, with the computing side of things, and that I have all these marvellous trainees who can you know, not only turn the thing on, but they can get to the right fact at the right time uh, with, with a fluency that I have never mastered. So one of the things perhaps I ought to take away from this conversation is I think I more or less know how I would anaesthetise this group of patients, but can you, can you get this to arrive on the computer with, with the sort of fluency that you can do and I can't do? It's interesting you talk about hidden curriculum because on the NovPod we had Joe Lipton who has been in charge of the novice curriculum or part of the working group towards it. And he was saying that, he, that they wanted as part of that working group to get away from a 17 checklist and then it also you're being assessed on actually are they safe delivering an anaesthetic and uh, we are a step maybe a step towards that with the change in curriculum. But we do still have almost a Goldilocks for trainees approach to training where you're going to be somewhere where you're far outside of your comfort zone, potentially, and worried about the decision with moral injuries that you're, you're having of what you're doing, or somewhere where you are a, you're a core trainee and you've never done an abscess by yourself and the I think where we should be looking towards is trying to get in between both of those. James Clear in Atomic Habits talks about that 4% outside your comfort zone. And I think the more we can explicitly talk about those things that are hidden in the curriculum, the more you can drive everyone getting the same sort of training elsewhere. Because sh you shouldn't be more competent if you're in one hospital than you are in another. And you shouldn't be terrified that you can't get the right help in one hospital as you are to, to another. And how you do that is a hospital by hospital, person by person basis. And then another thing I think with that is the different, the sort of the business of competence and confidence. Mm. There are a number of trainees who have um, who've learnt and have a way of behaving that makes them look as though, oh, I think you're very good, you know, you're confident, and I in, misinterpret that as you're, you're competent. And yet it's possibly a sign of putting on a behaviour, a sort of interview-type behaviour, when actually they are very underconfident. And perhaps if I could recognise that in a, in a bit more um, nuanced way... And there may be a little bit of a gender difference in mm. that. Um, and I think upbringing and, you know, and, and for me, I think as I got kind of further on in my consultant career and I found it much easier to say, hmm, I'm not quite sure about this. Uh, but to share that in a way that the trainee isn't worried about it. I remember being rung up by a trainee about a maternity situation and I said I don't think anything terrible is going to happen in the next half hour I've really no idea what's going on but I'm coming in I'm thinking now was that the right thing to say 
because the trainee, I think, felt very underconfident because the consultant didn't know what was going on. Well, quite frankly, quite a lot of the time, I have no idea what's going on. It's a little peek behind the curtain for everyone. But uh, that comes back to, I appreciate that you've said that out loud, Nancy. You've been able to say, I have no idea what's going on. Everyone, who are the people around me? Let's flat. Let's actually flatten the hierarchy because I can't be all things to all people. What resources do we have in front of us, and how do we best use that in this very time pressured situation? So actually, being a bit more open about that. And do you have examples of having done that? Um, I can think of um, times, for example, in the middle of the night when you think about those times when you are tired where your civility is probably the first thing to go mm. and actually you might be approaching that circadian nadir of four in the morning where we know that our cognitive functions starting to slip and again I'm trying to be better at normalising, saying out loud, I am tired. I would like you, the people around me, whether you're an anaesthetist in training, whether you're, I don't know why a medical student would be there at four in the morning, but good for them. Super keen keen medical student. We applaud that, but we want to talk about fatigue management, your ODP, (laughs) and actually saying, I'm feeling a bit tired right now. I would like you to notice if there's anything that you don't think is safe or is anything that you don't think is good or how we could do things better and just really being explicit about that, please speak up and that's where you also get into the use of cognitive aids such as a checklist and also normalizing using things like that Mm -hmm. because we are all human we all get tired Mm -hmm. and we all have to make sure Mm -hmm. that we we have an individual responsibility to perform as best as we can within the limitations of our physiology I was just about to say, like, we know, we know the science behind that, right? Like, if you get into a car after a night shift, you're doubling your risk of road traffic accident. There are studies that have been done on foundation doctors with gambling where they were more likely to not gamble at the start of a shift and they were much more likely to gamble on a decision when they come to a shift. And if we're not honest with ourselves and our team around us and if our trainers help pave the way for that by showcasing that behavior we're not are we truly performing the best for our patients a bit like when you are saying if no one sees co2 someone tell me because then you're empowering someone to say that and you are flattening that hierarchy and i i have to say i i really appreciate when people have said i've been up for 18 hours and i am ragged um but can you just do this and I will do this and then it makes me feel like oh I can say oh did you notice that uh, we've lost the SAS actually maybe that makes my anaesthetic seem unsafe Uh, have you noticed that you've uh, done X, Y, Z but that's real life because there are times for some you know for whatever reason your patient your patient will desaturate or the SATS probe will fall off Mm -hmm. and you might not notice because it's four in the morning and you've got 15 other plates Mm -hmm. to to spin in the air so actually I do think that is a strength and it's safety you declare something that is safe and it's back to creating we go back to the very start positive and safe learning environment Mm -hmm. well it's a positive and safe environment and if we have a positive and safe environment then surely that is one in which we can all learn. So one of the things I think we haven't hit on this is this business that if you do declare yourself as, as not quite the full shilling, as it were, you're still, you're still, in, you're still labelled consultant. And it's getting that, again, it's this balance between support and challenge. And so, you know, I'm not a 
my best because it's four in the morning or I've not actually seen this before I really don't know what's going on um, but following that with let's look at first principles or how like you were saying um, who else feels a bit more awake how can we as a team work this together uh, so that the people because somebody in that room will be absolutely alarmed that the person who's in what seems to them to be positional power is almost disowning their responsibility to actually try and make the thing function. Um, and that, again, I think this is about... And, and as you get more tired, and of course empathy goes after 12 hours, logical reasoning and vigilance you know, become more variable, we're perhaps less vigilant and less thinking about the language we use. Um, so it's a really challenging thing to do with tiredness. But I mean, during the day when there's uncertainty, you know, we've got, ask the audience, has anybody else in the theatre got any ideas? Um, I did a patient who turned out, well, the question was, had she got MH? Um, and we didn't know what was going on, but her temperature had got up to 41.5. And the only thing we could think that it was, was MH. But it had taken two and a half hours to develop and... and you know, it had started with too many heartbeats. And we kind of ended up saying, we don't know what's going on, we're going to call it this and we'll treat it. Um, but we're also asking the people next door if somebody could come and have a look and, and see what they think. Um, but it was just so good the way the surgeons, when we explained this might be what was going on, suddenly for this laparoscopy, a whole load of cold fluid emerged from from somewhere and they started squirting that down the laparoscopes and you know the dandrolene was wonderful I have to say um, but just kind of trying to keep that feeling that of sharing the openness that I've, I've not actually seen this before but then you know who has um, versus we are in we we're trying to tr deal with a very uncertain situation where your kind of behaviour and language is going to make it or break it really. And as we mentioned earlier with causal collisions, not causal or, or casual I think as I, as I did say, do you think as part of a trainer's role is to create those environments where you have either peer support mechanisms where these things happen naturally or you almost have your own Schwartz round, which is different from clinical governance. Because I think clinical governance, when they are going through that shared learning, is um, this this happens, don't do this. As opposed to Schwartz rounds is what you were talking about earlier, which is this person's late, or this person's done this, is actually thinking, okay, the, the thinking behind it, and it starts teaching people to um, think and critically appraising us and think about how many, diff almost appreciative inquiry, how many different sections will go into one result. How do you think, we, how do you think um, institutions can support that? Well, I mean, as you say, appreciative inquiry, why, you know, <laughs> they say that if something isn't assessed and it isn't on the curriculum, that the learners tend to learn it less. Um, and, and 
there are a number of things such as that and such as, uh, you know, I also think we should have uh, stuff about sleep physiology and fatigue that mm. is part of our core curriculum and part of what we assess in terms of uh, people's behaviours. Now, the college could do great things here because if the college's um, acts of accreditation or the, the way they present our discipline in um, places like the, you know, the, with the Care Quality Commission and what have you, um, we could make these things just part of the way we do it here. And that, you know, the way we do it here is the culture um, and, and to show those places that, that are really trying to do it well uh, and to use the sort of trying to get from good to great for as many people as possible um, to try and achieve a little bit more of this. So should your curriculum for your primary or for your final have some elements that have to do with these sort of behaviours? I guess that comes back to normalising it, doesn't it? We do something, we incorporate it into our day-to-day, -day, it just becomes a thing that you do. If it's a thing that you do, you might require your accreditation, you might require your exam sign-off, you might require this, that and the other. Just make it the thing that we do. Nancy, you mentioned about the female-male trainee difference that came in the Australian yep. paper. I know they, I spoke to a few trainees yep. from different backgrounds about coming today, more than one. They were saying that um, I'm coming into anaesthetics, uh, I'm, uh, I'm not a coffee drinker, I don't run marathons, and it's a challenging specialty that's talked about and how to make it more accessible for people. Why is there such a difference between the 60% and the 80% of people passing, whether or not you're uh, white British trained versus... Um, mm. IMGs, is it to do with the natural peer support that has uh, been created within anaesthetics and how do you make that more accessible to someone from a different background? One of the things I would look at there is teacher-centred and learner-centred uh, undergraduate experience um, because if you're, if you're being examined on factual, factual stuff and that's the main feature from a teacher-centred environment where you're meant to regurgitate facts then our approach is a really different, quite challenging thing um, where we're trying to get people to sort of analyse and synthesise sets of stuff where the facts are quite interesting, but it's what you do with them that matters. Um, and I think under pressure, you know how under pressure you revert back to what you think a good doctor does um, so you, I see this sometimes with with surgeons so that they think that a good surgeon takes command, and I, you know, kind of rather you didn't really if you could just get on with the job, mate. Um, and and how to work with somebody who is behaving like that under pressure, and you can see that that is causing damage. I suspect some of the candidates who are struggling a little bit more partly are not grasping that that, is, that our behaviour as a sort of Western UK learner-centred style is to look for that and therefore the language they're using isn't, isn't quite expressing the complexity in the way that perhaps a, you know, somebody for whom English is their, is their first language. 
Um, so I think there is that. And then I think there's this thing about do they, do they feel excluded and an imposter? Mm. Some interesting things said about the way that some anaesthetists are looking and thinking that these people are sort of lycra-wearing lycra coffee drinkers and that those of us who are um, finding walking up and down the stairs quite enough exercise for the week uh, need to be a bit more visible about that. One of the things I think um, I always think about and refer to when I think about environment, culture and well-being well-being is not about us having access to yoga or being resilient. I think the key thing that I always hark back to is Professor West and Dame Denise Coya's piece of work, Caring for Doctors, Caring for Patients. And they talk about the A, B and C of well-being. So for those of you that aren't familiar with that, um, there is an Anesthesia on Air podcast with Professor Michael West that I commend you to listen to. But please read that report what does um, A for autonomy mean for us? And some of those themes have come up already in the discussion that we've had. There's a lot that we've mentioned about the B, which is belonging. Who are we? How are we valued? And then C is competence. And what is our workload like? Are we doing enough? Are we not doing too much within that learning environment? And I think there's something really interesting, isn't there, about... Um, autonomy and respect for difference and belonging and being part of the crowd where people who come from a culture they've, they've come from abroad and they actually spend quite a lot of their lives within that you know they're partners from the same same country um, and and then and so they kind of live their home life in that culture and then they come out to work and then their sort of belonging to our culture is slightly less. They do say that if you want to learn a different language, you must speak it 70% of the time. Um, I've just had the privilege of supporting some um, people not in anaesthesia who've come from Myanmar um, and trying to help them as, as refugees who are highly intelligent and are pretty experienced in their own specialties but doing training jobs and trying to work out how what our culture is and how do they start to be feel as though they're belonging and yet we we respect the autonomy of their own um, you know the richness they bring from something that has been a very different experience and the third thing which is about competence of giving people the the space to, and, and the time and the uh, resources around them to be able to do a competent job, which, you know, for the poor trainees who's been rushed around for theatre one, theatre six, would you mind doing X or Y? And by the time they got to work, their phones ping four times with changes. You know, we're just, that, that is not creating that environment for them. Um, I really like those ABCs and when I've done wellbeing work before in um, one of the trusts where um, we tried to look at how we created those belonging, we actually used the fatigue paper, well I went to present the fatigue paper as evidence because uh, we went from a position where trainees got punished on nights for sleeping and power now naps. power naps, there yes, we are, that's, that's, the, that's the right yes, phrase. Yes. To um, to being able to being the trust invested in sleep pods, so there was somewhere for the for everyone to officially power rest. Um, I've come to uh, this conversation 
um, I think as a, a, a just a trainee, but I've asked some of my fellow trainees about um, what they would want about creating a positive environment that supported learning. And a lot, um, quite a few of them have mentioned making sure it's equal and there's equity in it. And um, we've first got to think about how anaesthetics is represented. A lot of people felt a bit excluded because they're not a coffee drinker. They don't run marathons. They weren't, as you said earlier, Nancy, a confident white man who shouted a lot in the room. And they found it a challenging specialty um, of how to get, firstly get into it and then how to succeed in it. And now that some of them are in anaesthetics and have been there for a long time, they've realised that actually a lot of the consultants hate cycling and they really hate coffee as well. And actually it was a lot more approachable than they thought. So how do you feel that we can make sure that we are giving people enough opportunities when they're training and we're making sure that those peer support groups are equal? Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm interested in this because I'm thinking about equality and equity and there's a thing called distributive justice where equal is the same for everybody, whereas according to need, according to achievements, according to um, experience, there's lots of different ways of thinking actually how do we get equity so that the short person, that's me, can still be heard at the microphone when the tall person that's you, um, it actually has the microphone set at that level. And of course, one of the things in anaesthesia is that I think a relatively larger proportion of us might be ex introverts and who are noticed in the room are the extroverts and looked at from the outside you know, you will never make us introverts into extroverts, but do we have to do something to say, you know, quite a lot of us are not that... Uh, and, and a lot of the, you know, white men who are, are very practised at presenting themselves, well, they might not be extroverts in the real world, but they've learnt this way of being. And, and how do we encourage the way of being of difference to to be more visible so that the um, cultural it, it kind of it's not the cultural zenith is it to be that you know six foot two white male it's what people have um, is it us baby boomers who thought that was the right thing to do I don't I don't know where's it come from what do we do about it there's a lot in that and I want to bring it back to role modeling again when I think about role models and visibility, I think about, from the things we've discussed, differences in people, in people within, for want of a better word, the tribe of anaesthesia, and then think about colleagues in anaesthesia who've been doing really great work and in increasing visibility. So people like Dr. Becky Marsh and This, Girl's Block, this Girl Blocks and Regional Anaesthesia, Dr. Sathena Watson and all the work she's done in empowering black anaesthetists. Those are just two examples of many, many. So again, it comes back to visibility, bringing people with you if you can and role modelling. Don't leave the door shut behind you when you get somewhere. It's now time to draw this podcast to a close. Thank you so much, Nancy and Owen, for your time and a really interesting discussion on the subject of creating a learning environment. For any further details, we will share some information in the description. Thank you and goodbye. Mm -hmm.